So it's great to have everyone back together this week in the second episode of our podcast series, focusing on change and unintended consequences. So Christine and Ryan, it's fantastic to have you both back from CitySoft and RBC, and for us to be joined by Randy McGathy from the Milestone Group today, who has extensive experience in the North American space, especially with asset owners, and uh, you're the proud author, I would say, Randy, of, of the Asset Allocators report from 2020, which I'm sure will come in very handy today. So thank you all very much for joining us again. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. So last week we talked about the kind of today's operating model, spreadsheets, their role, good and bad, in supporting asset allocators in particular around the world. We talked about thresholds, we talked about the limits of spreadsheets, we talked about governance, and we also talked about the risk of that kind of post-Excel bounce back as a bit of a challenge that we all face. So now that we've described the baseline, and today we're going to talk about the external pressures that are impacting that operating model today. So what's driving change at a boardroom level? What are the macro considerations in particular, regulatory and others? And really, what are the unintended consequences of some of the actions that we're seeing in the market today? So to kick us off, just to give a quick broad view of basically what the regulatory and and pressures landscape looks like around the world, not surprisingly, it depends very much on where you are. At one end of the spectrum is Australia and increasingly South Africa, where the pressures for change are really very strongly felt, uh, most acutely felt in the world. And those pressures really driven very strongly by an increasing amount of regulatory enforcement. At the other end of the scale, North American asset owners who feel significantly less pressure to change, roughly three and a half out of five on our scale, driven mainly by internal considerations around risk optimization and kind of their own efficiencies. In the middle, you've got the Europeans, not only geographically, but also functionally, who are really stuck in the middle of ESG land, very, very, very strongly focused on governance and sustainability as a massive driver all the way from the grassroots up. So it does depend on where you are, but I wanted to maybe just kick off, Randy, if I may, with your take on that. That's the kind of what I've run through is the the survey findings. Does that reconcile with your take? It does indeed, Barney. I would, you've characterized it just right. There is significant external pressure, if you will, in Australia, for example. APRA is urging, shall we say, the superannuation funds to transform with a focus on transparency and delivering optimal outcomes to members. And so in the context of your framing, the regulatory environment is is actually having a significant effect there. And we can talk more about the details. But contrasted with that would be North America, where I would suggest that through the maturity and longevity of ERISA has been a sort of well ingrained in the pensions and asset owner market. Everyone's familiar with that, compliant with that. And so the factors that are uh, sort of driving transformation in North America, if we're going to put an external framing on it, would be market forces, the seeking better returns, everyone seeking better returns. But by taking on more complex assets, more advanced investment strategies, and all of the infrastructure and process that's necessary to support that. So sort of very different drivers of transformation, I'd say, in those two markets. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the other factors that we have and I didn't really showcase was the scale piece in terms of the size of the uh, of the asset owner or the pension fund. Ryan, what's your take in terms of actually how we're seeing, a, is there much diversity in terms of the what the big ones are focused on versus the smaller ones? 
Yeah, so I think, yeah, because how they look at their their clients, the pensioners, changes, you know, over the last, I'd say, five plus years, we've seen a few of the asset owner pools consolidate, right? And then you also have uh, plans such as, you know, the College of Applied Arts and Technology opening up their plan to asset owner pools that aren't tied to colleges. So it's about sort of diversifying the liabilities, right? So I think when we talk about pressures, macro pressures, especially in different regions, I think demographics plays a part. And then the size of the asset pool also plays a part because you're essentially servicing a bigger underlying base of pensioners. That's what we're saying with our clients. Yeah, and, and Christine, what do you think from a, from your obviously your you know you're sitting talking to these board members every day? I mean, are these are these considerations kind of top of mind, particularly in North America, in terms of you know the the whole market forces, the diversification, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting, and I, I agree, Randy. The longitude of or the length of time that ERISA has been in place has really has really made a, a difference in the in the U.S. market. You know, the Canadian in the Canadian market, I think it's really interesting because to Ryan's point, you see different plans doing different things because of what's happening. There's a force in particularly in Ontario right now to consolidate for plans to consolidate. So whether that's the university plan, whether that's IMCO, all of these other other plans that are, you know, being pushed in that direction with regards to coming together. I think part of that is the government indicating that it's there needs to be a better place for for the pensioners and the information and being able to have a better management set up so that you know you're not dealing with smaller firms and and allowing for a broader a broader scale to be able to be leveraged and you know we've seen that with the various provinces you know with across the country uh, whether it's BC or, or Quebec there are these very large plans. They're not plans. They're investment management shops who manage the money for plans. And they have the infrastructure. And they've got the ability to be able to provide that level of transparency. And I think that's what people are seeking and really need. And I think as well, we've got the, this is going to sound a bit crazy, but you know, we've also got the pressure of the new millennials coming into these plans who effectively want that level of transparency. They want that information. They want to understand. So I think there's not just pressure from a regulatory perspective, but also bottom up. And I see Randy nodding his head. So do you agree with that, Randy? Am I off base? No, no, no. I completely agree with you. And, and I'm nodding because what you just described uh, very much applies in, in Australia as well, where APRA is, in fact, uh, precipitating mergers. They're seeking size or superannuation funds are merging in order to create efficiencies of scale and to achieve greater levels of transparency, in fact, as a principal objective there so that members can clearly understand what it is they're getting. And then just to have the the scale and the means by which to to seek and achieve best practices. Again, I'm using words that you did to deliver the best outcomes possible for for uh, their their members or, or, or investors. So, in the case of what you just described in Canada and, and in Australia, the regulatory pressures are are having the closely aligned effects. So, 
maybe if, if to put that together, ultimately, it's fascinating because it really means you've got two kind of buckets. You've got basically consolidation world, and then you've kind of got ERISA land, I suppose, if you wanted to kind of call it that. And you know, and I think it's it's fascinating because it, when we in in this survey, there was a stat that stood out that Australians are twice as likely to be consolidating as Americans are at a pension fund level. So you know, ultimately, that spectrum really stands out. But, you know, this whole question of consolidation, driving scale and all this kind of stuff, noble objectives at the top end. But, you know, presumably it depends a lot on the way it's being executed in terms of actually how the, the kind of the people who are driven to consolidate are taken in on this. How does this play out? Because ultimately, for me, you know, the big guys, as you said, they're investment management shops. They're not plans. The smaller guys who are trying to eke out an investment management strategy, trying to basically trying to, to deliver What's this kind of forced consolidation doing to them from a mindset perspective? Randy? So there are some of those distinctions that you just described, and I'm thinking in, in, in North America, where some pension plans are investment managers driven largely by their size. I would say the mega plans are, in fact, highly sophisticated and developed. And I mean, I don't want to sound I'll be, whatever I say is going to be understated, but they are investment management firms. They have their own investment operations, and they are, in fact, often creating best practices in the state of, of the art. But those that aren't that big are seeking services as a client, not as an investment management client, not as an investment management firm. And so it really is like two separate categories. Interestingly, and I don't, that's not necessarily the topic of this conversation, but the second of those two groups, I think, are sorting out whether or not it makes sense for them to try to become their own invest to become an investment management firm. And there are plenty of those, but those that aren't are probably are, are deciding: should we seek a buyout firm for our liability, or should we look to an OCIO and allow that OCIO to create that scalability? For us. Something we've seen is that, um, you know, in Canada, out west, you know, there were sort of political incentives to for smaller plans to merge into the bigger plans. And on the back of some of the bigger plans, having some big losses. And so then it created pause for the smaller plans and the trustees of the smaller plans to say, you know, we have a fiduciary obligation to our pensioners that the super plans may not be this panacea of, you know, sort of just like give it to them and everything will be amazing, right? That So they, they have to figure out where those lines exist, where they still have their obligation to their pensioners, because that's one thing they cannot outsource. They can outsource their investment managers, but they cannot outsource essentially their obligation and their duty to their pensioners. So I think we've seen some of the smaller plans seriously consider that, especially at the board level, at the trustee level, to make sure that the super plans are giving them what they need in order to be able to govern and control. And then, you know, from the super plans perspective, they have to ask themselves, okay, now we suddenly have clients. Are you know, these these pools of assets and are we going to give them the reporting and, or, and how do we manage to give them the reporting and meet their needs and are they okay with our asset allocation and so on, right? And the different types of products. So I think there's still conversation. The liabilities still have to be considered because at the end of the day, we have to protect the, you know, retirement income of these individuals. 
and it'll be interesting. And I think, especially in Canada, the changing demographic as, you know, our population starts to bring in a lot of immigration, right? Canada's said that there's a plan to step up immigration and we bring in folks that are going to come straight into the workforce and there's going to be sort of an influx of folks joining these plans. What does that mean? right? Uh, as they come from different geographies and different expectations of what their retirement income looks like. So I think there are a lot of complex forces at a macro level that we'll be dealing with. Yeah, but I think what's really coming through very strongly is this existential question that regulators are driving now is, are you an investment management shop or are you a plan? And ultimately, you know, I think for me that that kind of clarity that's being driven by, as you said, by um, various provinces in Canada, by the um, by APRA, and also, I think also increasingly in South Africa as well, we, you know, it's, it is a detailed question that has many strands attached to it in terms of, as you said, are you fit to be an investment management shop with service, with client service responsibilities and et cetera, et cetera. And presumably there must be a large number of organizations that are getting, getting caught in the halfway house between the two, that they're not just a, you know, a couple of people pension plan, nor are they basically a, a 50 billion pension plan. They're somewhere in the middle. I mean, from a North American perspective, for those that aren't kind of, you know, we talked at the beginning about ERISA being a much more kind of stable background, more of a mature market in the US. What are we seeing there in terms of when people aren't preoccupied with consolidation and this existential question? What are the boardroom conversations going on there? I think it's about operational transformation, sort of coming back to the home base here, and, uh, and seeking ways to, well, to both mitigate operating risk as a threat to the plan and its funded status or the operation of a DC plan, different situation, but also looking to just make it more efficient and responsive to the individuals, to the organization that is running the investments. So building on some anecdotal and and survey work that we've done, we would observe that even the largest in pension plans, asset owners who are running their own shops have relatively fragmented technology infrastructure. And they're then confronted with ways to try to operationally make sense of it, not make sense of it, but to operate it efficiently and coherently. And they're looking at what should we do to make it be better, more integrated, more efficient. So we, I think in terms of just the the necessity of creating a view of the overall portfolio when you may be accounting for or processing different asset classes on different platforms, and then the need to bring that together so that you have a single view for the asset allocator to come to conclusions about if, when, and what should be done to adjust the portfolio from time to time to keep it in compliance with strategy and investment policy, and then to trade it. And that can often involve a significant number of different systems. So if they're looking for ways to either better integrate those systems, or in fact, is there yet a different technology that may enable an operating model that is in fact just fundamentally more integrated and therefore more efficient and responsive to their needs? I would agree with you, Randy. I think one of the things we see, you know, from a consulting perspective is we're often brought in to help firm, uh, you know, organizations to understand and determine how to better operate. You know, so what does an efficient operating model look like? I think there's a lot of pressure on the service providers to have to evolve and be able to answer questions for them. I think there's also this in-source, outsource, how much in, how much out. You know, obviously, custody is always out, but the rest, you know, what does that look like? What does that mean? 
And I do think that there's a significant amount of pressure to try to get the efficiency. And one of the things that we see, particularly in, in, in Canada, and I know, you know, having worked in with some, some firms in Australia as well, very similar, the types of assets, I should say, that they're investing in, the fact that they're investing in, you know, there's not a building you walk in in Toronto that doesn't have some pension plan name on it, right? The reality is that these organizations are really looking for different asset classes, different viewpoints, and they have to have the tools to be able to report on them, just as Ryan said, and as you said as well, to be able to provide their their investor, their pensioners, the information that, that they need. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that have to happen. So to your point, how do they cobble these things together? And historically, they've been able to kind of piece it, but as real estate investments, private placements, the diversity of the assets that they're investing in, I think are really driving some of that organizational change that you're talking about or operational change. They can't necessarily change what they do. As Ryan said, you know, as the trustees, they, they have a responsibility, but they still have to, but how do they pull it all together? And I think it does put a lot of pressure on service providers. And I think it's it's forcing firms to look elsewhere to get both the service providers plus the technology providers to kind of come together and work together. And we're seeing a lot more consolidation that way. And a lot of that is being driven by this by the plans themselves, I think. That's my perspective. I don't know what you and Ryan think. I agree completely. In fact, I'd say the they are the, the asset owners, the, the institutional investors are looking more broadly for their solutions, both from a service and a technology perspective. Yes. And driven by that, the traditional service providers are changing the way that they think and assemble solutions for their clients. So what you might have called a custodian a decade ago is actually much more than a custodian now. And they're bringing additional kinds of solutions, including technology solutions that weren't necessarily homegrown to the market, to the relationship, to the solution. Right. And so... One thing, we've managed to actually go a podcast and a half without mentioning the three letters of E, S, and G. And I'm just listening to everything we're talking about in terms of inputs and to your point about driving efficiency, rationalization, and existential question of what we're here for in terms of consolidation. All of that is now set against, uh, particularly in Europe, set against a context of the entire operational stack needs to be seen through a new dimension. Now, it's not just about investment performance, it's about sustainability governance and so on and so forth. I mean, Europe, from the research, Europe is is absolutely at the square centre of all of this, four out of five in terms of the, the pressure at boardroom level being felt by this, and also Africa, interestingly enough. But it's only half as strong in North America and APAC And so in the context of what you guys were just saying, massive change, massive need to rationalize, to pull together, what's ESG doing to that? Is that that kind of adding a a fifth dimension to the whole project and blowing them up? Is it running in parallel? How are you feeling that the whole ESG discussion is playing out from a North American context? I'll jump in. My view is that ESG is, in fact, an important current or influence in the U.S. market. It's not being imposed from a regulatory perspective, but from a market perspective. So large institutional investors, the huge pension plans are very focused on ESG. They think about it from its sort of social impact perspective, but ultimately as they must from the US perspective and ERISA, they have to look at it from 
what how what's the import of ESG on the long term performance, the ability of the investment structure to deliver the returns and the benefits out to the to the pensioners that are required. So the institutional investors are looking for ESG to have an, a positive effect on the outcomes that they deliver to the pensioners and therefore the providers. So we'll say the investment managers, the people producing the product are highly motivated to compete to deliver products that are responsive to what the investors, the asset owners are looking for. So I think it's active, but not from a regulatory perspective, but from a very typical U.S. perspective is let the market sort it out. I would also add just anecdotally from a non-institutional investor perspective, but from an individual investor, retirement investor perspective, when we raised the notion of millennials in the past, I have some anecdotal access to millennials, and I can tell you it's at the top of their mind. They, I get frequently quizzed about what's happening ESG-wise and where can the right, quote-unquote, from an ESG perspective, investment solutions be found for those millennials' personal retirement and, and personal operating investing as well. So the market will sort this out because the big providers want all of those sources of business. So I won't ask who on this call wants to speak for the millennial community or if any of us believe ourselves to be millennials. But uh, from a, I think it's a really great point. Ultimately, if I hear you right, ultimately regulation trumps market forces. And, and so therefore, you know, a certain degree when you're basically when you're being handed by an APRA or somebody like that, you're going to do what they say first. And market forces all, all kind of always come as the kind of discretionary part of the portfolio, if you like. But I think it's also to your point about the pressure being felt from the outside. One of the quotes was in the research was that ESG in Europe is a grassroots, bottom-up responsibility that's deeply felt by every individual. I mean, presumably we're we're seeing that kind of come through, and some of the smaller plans, I'm assuming, are much are going to be much more sensitive to that than some of the bigger ones, just be given given their makeup. Does that resonate, Ryan? I mean, in terms of just the the, the exposure that some firms in in North America are carrying to ESG. So I haven't seen it so much in the smaller firms. I think I was recently speaking to a new CIO of a large plan, around forty billion, and you know his point was that he was going to make, he was going to build out the technologies to understand the carbon footprint of the portfolio. And he was going to do everything he could to report out on it. But he was not going to sacrifice his fiduciary obligation for returns in order to make it a green portfolio. So I think from a list of priorities to Randy's point, you know, the market is driving it. They are considering it, but it's not at all costs. And I think the other thing is, you know, we, we over the last few conversations, we've talked about how complex the macro environment is and then how that is sort of uh, leading to transformations within organizations. When you start to consider applying an ESG filter to your portfolio, it adds another degree of complexity and having to consider. So, you know, it's just one of those things that I think people are taking their time with, you know, recently, you know, Tesla getting kicked out of the index, right? It just highlighted the fact that a company that sort of created a market for sustainability can have violations in, you know, other parts of the ESG, right? That it isn't as simple as just being green, 
that there are many different factors to how we assess, how honestly and how close we are to sort of a standard. I mean, it's evolving. We're trying to really sort of, you know, keep the truck moving, change the tires and fuel it at the same time. So I think, uh, you know, the Canadian market, what I'm saying is people are going to take their time so that uh, they take care of the basics first and then apply this. And it will definitely evolve. I mean, Randy's right. It's definitely a force and a current. We'll get there. It just may not be tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. And Christine, just... One thing is always challenging is basically is people raise the term ESG and Ryan, to your point, that kind of loosely translates into carbon footprint measuring. How, you know, but obviously ESG as, as, a, as a theme is so much broader than that. What are the other areas that kind of ESG translates into in terms of, okay, well, these are the areas that we need to be thinking about? Because obviously some of the big Canadian funds are, are leading the world in this stuff in terms of their thinking. So They are, yeah, I would agree. It's interesting. They definitely are leading the charge in terms of making sure that, you know, from an investment perspective and also the way they operate. I think one of the biggest challenges is the reporting. And so, you know, those smaller firms, you know, to Ryan's point, there's uh, you see some of them doing it. And it's a big it's it's a big implementation. I spoke with one small plan, you know, last year and they, it took them two years to get their ESG reporting put together everything operational, multiple tool sets. It's a lot of effort. I think the larger plans have the benefit of the infrastructure, as Randy was talking about earlier, you know, that infrastructure to be able to be able to create the reporting. Just stepping out of the asset owner world, the investment management firms are having the same challenge. So it's across the board. It doesn't matter whether it's an asset owner or it's a it's it's an investment manager. And a lot of the smaller firms are using third parties. So those investment managers have to adhere if the plan wants to adhere, right? So there's a lot of pressure across the board. And you you joked about the millennials. I am not a millennial, but I I uh, I'm the mother of one. And let me tell you, we do not use plastic. <laughs> She's changing our world. And we've been talking about this. You know, she's recently into an, a, a plan herself. You know, the, what, what does that mean? What does that mean from an investment perspective? So it is fascinating to see. And I think it is going to change. I think the other thing, too, is in the Canadian marketplace, there was always a concept from an investment perspective. You know, we all joke about, you remember the old days, Randy, you'll smile at this, you know, when people were always worried about the sin stocks, right? Right. So ESG is just taking it that much further, right? It's taking that conceptual idea, formalizing it and making it so important uh, from an investment perspective. And also, I think providing plans an opportunity to rethink or reestablish how they're thinking about being able to provide that level of transparency to their pensioners, which I think is critical. And I think as we see consolidation, I think we're going to see more and more of it coming to play. And I don't think from a regulatory perspective, we're going to get hit as quickly as the UK has. I think they've been hit very fast. Um, it's become such a big piece. I think it's going to take a while for everybody to catch up there, certainly based on my experience. And I do think that, you know, North America is kind of doing it at its own pace. I think Canada's adopting it a little bit quicker, probably much more like Australia, very similar marketplaces. Look, we got our constitutions at the same time. We're Commonwealth countries and we're about the same size. So, you know, in terms of population. So it's a very similar kind of phenomena that's happening there. 
as it is here. So I think we're going to see see that become more driven by them as opposed to being driven by the regulator. And I think that that pressure is, is really what's going to be we're going to see come through. No, and that, that's it's, it's a great point because ultimately, you know, you've kind of got stage one of ESG, which is, you know, as you said, just basically track and manage or track and see performance. And then two is kind of a, a far more distant stage in North America, which is actively managing performance based on what you're seeing. And as you rightly said, you know, the UK and Europe is way, way ahead on that. And it's going to be interesting, I think, to see a market that operationalizes ESG across the entire investment cycle is going to have some very strong trickle downs into, as you said, into Australia, into South Africa, the one we also similar mix and 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 Canada. So look, so just to tie it all together, I mean, we've we've covered off, you know, a huge range of things. But I think when you pull together the challenges and the disparities between the regulatory enforcement markets and then the kind of the more mature, stable markets, as we said, around ERISA in the US, for example, you've got a, 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 a dual par- a parallel con- set of considerations. On the one hand, this existential question about am I an investment management shop and, or, or am I a plan? Christine, to your point. Alongside that and intermingled with that is this whole question of risk and efficiency as a focus. So whether or not that is is the primary driver, as we're seeing in America, or whether or not that's a consideration as part of the whole consolidation question, depends on where you are. But there doesn't seem to be any doubt that ESG is just gently warming up in certainly in North America and, and, and outside of Europe as a consideration. It's rising through the ranks. And every year that the millennials become more and more entrenched without using an oppositional word in the workforce, the more important it's going to get. So I hope that's a reasonable summary of, of kind of the, the big considerations that are playing out. The value of this podcast series is obviously is next one, we get to talk about how the rubber hits the road. So how are these considerations actually turning into projects? You know, and what does that journey really look like? Because that's the the meat of this is basically is, okay, this is what we've talked about is, is what's on people's minds. What we talked about in the last session was what the operating model is that they're now having to adapt and change. So hopefully the next conversation, we can really get into the nuts and bolts of it. So I hope that's a decent summary, but thank you so much for your inputs and your suggestions. If anyone wants to dig into any of the statistics, you can download the key findings and the report at thevalueexchange.co or reach out to Christine at CitySoft, Ryan at RBC and Randy at the Master Group. I don't think those are your email addresses, but you can probably divine it. So thank you very much, guys. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.